Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We are your hosts, Erica Switzer and Martha Gu. And you just heard Schubert's Haydn Röslein, performed by Ellie Ameling and Dalton Baldwin. Recently, we spoke with the director, the founder of the Franz Schubert Institute in Baden by Wien, just outside of Vienna. His name is Dean Larson. And I met Dean Larson in 1999. I went to do the course there. And I was pretty much blown away by how he changed the way that I saw poetry, by how he changed the way that I approached playing a song. And so I was thrilled when he was in New York City and we had a chance to, to chat with him. So Dean Larson is originally from Richfield, Utah, but he's lived in Austria since 1973. He studied literature and philosophy. He got his PhD at the University of Vienna. He also has a special scholarly interest in German poetry from the age of Goethe. And so we thought, who better to ask about Goethe and uh, Schubert's setting of Heidenreuslein, because he has just so much to say on that topic. In fact, our, our first idea about this podcast was to choose three Schubert songs, but we quickly found out that he had so much to say that uh, we could do a whole podcast on one song. And, and that's what we're going to do. Absolutely. Something that I have always found remarkable about Dean is the way that he speaks. He is able to live in a slower dimension than us racing about trying to get all of our errands done in a day and learn all the music we need to learn and all of those things that keep us musicians busy. He's always been able to take the time to think and to think before he speaks. And it lends itself to understanding a kind of depth in poetry that I think you don't find any other way. So I'll slow us down, get us ready, and Dean will tell us a little bit about the Franz Schubert Institute in his own words. Well, uh, what is the Franz Schubert Institute? It's, um, 
it's an opportunity for good young singers and pianists to hmm, to study the standard lead repertoire from the point of view of the poetry and the landscape. And it's a holistic approach to making music so that uh, in our environment, we have equal respect for singers and pianists, uh, mutual respect for each other. There's, mm-hmm. It's not the case that the pianist is in any way accompanying the, the singer, but rather creating the magic zone into which the singer can enter. Uh, there is also a mutual respect and equality between the words and uh, the music. And this is very exciting because the young people get to work with actors, actresses, people who, who are professionals uh, in performing the poetry as poetry, before then they transform that into performing the poetry uh, in and as music. Every summer during the master classes in Baden by Wien, Dean leads a 9 a.m. poetry class. And he walks the class slowly through poetic deconstructions, helping us to understand the, the details, the, the sounds of poetry and how they attach to meaning. He brings us, in fact, into an entirely new world. And here are Dean's words of advice on understanding the poetry of Goethe. I think what I want to say is, if you're serious about something that, or that you have a passion for, for some part of life and, and you want to go there again and again, uh, I think it's only going to be satisfying and nourishing if you go to the source, if you try to find the fountainhead. You want to go to the origin. This is nourishing and, and the way it should be. And I, this is one of the principles we have at the Franz Schubert Institute is that uh, it's no good copying anybody. Models are not there to be copied, but uh, you you uh, have to go there yourself. You have to go to that dangerous and exciting place yourself in your own soul and your experience. And then uh, something will happen to you. Something will want to speak through you. And we frequently say it's not about you. It's not about your ego, your vanity. It's, not, it's a very pure, almost a religious kind of uh, contribution you're making to your to the world, the people that are around you and that need this kind of nourishment. What it what I'm talking about is when you go to the source in the Gertian sense is that uh, you are you are driven by a deep need and urge to know as you are known and and to to see uh, all to see God in nature could say, but not the Christian God, but rather a cosmic force of, that is generous and sustaining and loving. And, and, and you have a kind of a, a worldview of emanation, that is to say that the creative, whatever it is, uh, is constantly manifesting itself in, in the world of nature and in human nature. And, and this is what we estrange ourselves so often from, in our individual vanities and greeds, making making a mess out of the world, which we're obviously doing. Mm-hmm. And this kind of song emerges, this kind of poetry uh, emerges from an immediate, a sense of immediate identification with the source spirit or the source energy. Now, that's all 
quite general, I suppose, but if, you, if we take Haydn's line as an example, it's a very early song, very early poem of Goethe's as well, and I, uh, I like it very much for that reason. If you ever want to start reading a new, a new poet, a new novelist, or something like that, you, you'd be well advised to go to the first books that they wrote. You have very often, for a genius already has in an embryo, in a form, everything that will come later on is just coming out fresh, out of the freshness of the spring. And then, it, then he works with it, or she works with it a lifetime. But it's good for us to go see what that is and, and try to um, to identify with that and, and go down that path. You want to go to the source. So I would say uh, that Eidenreuss line is, is, is good an example of source material or fresh creation along these along this path that you can find in Goethe's writings, which are very, very voluminous. And also Schubert's hundreds and hundreds of songs. This one um, might be interesting to try to find out um, on a little deeper level uh, what is motivating, what is trying to, to be expressed, what is trying to express itself. Dean led us next to Haydn Roslein, but before we hear what he has to say, let's hear the poem first. Once a boy saw a little rose standing, little rose of the field. She was so young and beautiful, he dashed there quickly to see her near, beholden with abundant joy. Little rose, little rose, little rose red, little rose of the field. The boy then said, I shall pick thee, little rose of the field. The little rose said, I shall stick thee, that you'll always think of me, and I'll not want to suffer it. Little rose, little rose, little rose red, little rose of the field. Still the rough boy picked the rose, little rose of the field. The little rose fought thus and pricked. No prose of pain could help her, alas, she must suffer it yet. Little rose, little rose, little rose red, little rose of the field. And now back to Dean as he talks about this folk ballad. Uh, in this little ballad, you have in a miniature, very clear and simple form, a tragic encounter. Here you have the most primal, simple one you can imagine. And what you have is a, a boy who notices a rose growing uh, by itself in the wilderness, in the, in the heath, and is so smitten by the beauty of this rose that, that he runs over to be close to the rose. And they have a little conversation. And then the boy picks the rose. That's the end of the story. I mean, what could be simpler? This is a very problematic story. In the, the various places I've, I've, where I've worked on this in different universities, and the young people almost always, especially the, the girls, are offended by this and see it as a, somehow a rape, uh, an act of violence which is intolerable and unacceptable and should, and, and should be condemned. I don't think it's that at all. And so that's what begins to get interesting. You see, this poem and then the song is emblematic. It's the, it's the beginning, the, the true beginning of the consciousness response to the world, to nature, 
question is, why does it have this power, this overwhelming desire that, that the boy has to get to the rose? It starts with seeing. This is for Goethe immensely important throughout all of his life, his studies of color. But the point is that the power to see, za ein Knapp, ein Röslein stehen. You notice the sound, the za Knapp, the accents, the same sound. Uh, invariably, in Goethe's simple lyrics, you'll find, if you become aware of them and open yourself to them, that the sound patterns correspond very closely to meaning patterns. This is not designed that way, but it's just the nature of his poetic gift to do that. And this creates the, the texture that is so magical. Uh, and, and I don't mean as an ornament. It is a conjuring. This is so important. These words are not descriptive. They are evocative. They are names. And these words are conjuring. They're calling. They're by speaking them, by making them sounds, you are as if in a ritual prayer, creating that being which you name. And these are names. This is very important for the performance of this kind of Schubert lead. That's, um, you do not communicate. You become that which you sing. The knapp you could say the boy is the seer, and they are the same. To see is to be the boy. If you are the boy you see, it's the knabens are the same. And it has in it the mover. The boy is the mover. Moving motion is very important. Lief er schnell es nah zu sehen. You notice again the vowel na. Picks up on the knapp, saß, saß, and saß, mit vielen Freuden. And it was so, but why did he run? War so jung und morgen schön, rief er schnell es nah zu sehen. It's seemingly simple. The word, the compound morgen schön, is not uh, in the nature of folk. Fiction, folk, and it is it is a little glimmering, a little uh, sparkle of the uh, of this genius, the Sturmantram, which is coming. This this creative, ex, uh, audacious use of it. But Morgenstern is is uh, everyone understands probably. It does not mean beautiful like the morning. It means the beauty of the morning, which is a power. It is uh, that which makes the rose irresistibly necessary, valuable, beautiful. And here comes the most important point, or one of the points, it seems to me. The morning, you find it again and again through these Goethe, is the, the most sacred time. It's the appearance of the divine, of the sun. The boy runs to the rose because the rose has absorbed and concentrated the beauty of the sunrise in its face. It is that divine emanation. And that's, but that's no fairy tale. That is, in fact, the way nature is, works and we are part of it. And you have to go to the rose. You can't go to the sun directly. 
I do not mean to belabor this, make it a, a philosophical treatise when you sing this, when you perform it, but you should be aware of the, of the deep resonance which is there, even in the childlike simplicity of, of the performance. It still has that, that depth of, of resonance shimmering up through it, don't you think? So then you have the, the triple repetition, Rosenstein, Rosenstein, Rosenstein. Of course, the number three is uh, a conjuring number in, in fairy tales, in magic. It is a conjuring. And it seems to me, I often suggest that this, this poem is uh, really, that the rose is a kind of goddess in her, in her role of representative of the divine as the of course, in our cultural backgrounds, the, the, the rose is a very, very rich symbol, not only for Venus, but also for the Virgin Mary and, and many mm-hmm. other delightful creatures. And it is compounded. And this, um, this, there's a certain sacred element, which the boys and the song, it seems to me, in all, in all seriousness and, and, and joy, and, and is a celebration of the fact that the rose exists the celebration that we can love that rose and then that we pick it and it becomes a difficult thing. But you know, it goes up, Rosalind, 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 Rot, Rot is held, you know, and on a, on a tone that once you have it be resolved, which it is, and it is the redness of the rose, which cannot, well, can hardly be emphasized enough that the, in Goethe's understanding then, which he develops in later years, Red is the, the most sacred color. And if uh, you study his circle of colors and how they, what they mean for, the, for our feelings and for our sense of self and, and for nature and so on, red occupies the apex. And it is the most unstable color and the most color that is closest to the mystery of life, the color of blood, of fire, of birth, death, of sex, uh, it's, it, it's this sensual seed of, of, of glory, and it's brilliant, the, the red. So we're just going to listen now to the first verse of Haydn Roslein, again performed by Ellie Ameling and Dalton Baldwin. Continuing on with Dean's explanation, he spoke about the conversation the boy and the rose have in stanza two and three, and the reason why the boy has to pick the rose with all of its thorns. Right. So we had the the first part of this story was uh, the seeing and the moving, and then the second stanza has a little conversation. Very direct, forthright, and uh, the boy jumps right in and says, I'm going to to pick you or break you off, it means to pick. And the, and the rose responds spontaneously, well, then I'm going to stick you. And you notice that Brechen and Stechen are uh, simply a transformation or 
two different forms of something deeper, perhaps. You know, this leads us already to uh, what I think is a basic idea, is the affinity between the boy and the rose, that they are a lot alike at heart. They're both wild, because the boy is called und der wilde Knabe, later on. And the rose is not in a garden. She is also a creature of the wild wilderness. This is interesting. Goethe maintained, as, as Empedocles did much earlier on, that you only can perceive and know that which is uh, similar to yourself, or which rather, which is of the same essence as you. You, you can only know what is similar to yourself. This is a, an important, a, a deep idea, which uh, you can trace through and find in, in Faust. You can find it in many places, Goethe. Well, um, how does it go on? The rose warns the, the boy not to do this, not, because, again, she says, I will prick you so that you will eternally think of me. You will think of me forever. And I don't want to suffer this. Now, in fact, this is what happens. That the pain, which is involved in taking the rose, seems to be necessary or fundamental in, in the notion of, or in the creation of an artifact or of a song or of a memory we remember. So I wanted to make the point that the wound is necessary. And imagine, what if the rose had no thorns? A radically different kind of experience for us. Or, what again, what if the, the boy came and said, well, I'm going to pick you, and the rose got watery eyes and panting breath and said, yes, yes, I will, pick me, pick me, I will, like the end of Ulysses. <laughs> uh, and then... Wanting to be picked like the violet in Das Weilchen. And the boy, hearing that, changes his mind, turns and walks away and doesn't pick the rose. <laughs> Imagine that variation. Uh, these are uh, playful, but perhaps helpful to uh, assess the value and the necessity of the beauty and pain together. And as Goethe later said, uh, also all passion involves suffering. And what is the outcome? And, and both together are necessary for art, in this sense. Art as a, the celebration of being alive. So, as it were, the, the, the boy is like um, the fatal mover, which, in fact, the, the rose needs. The rose, to fulfill her beauty of the morning, she needs to be picked. She would like this cup to pass by, but it won't. And so, finally, then, the, the wild boy comes and picks the, the little rose, and the rose defends itself and pricks, but didn't help at all, all of the, the pain. And must es eben leiden. The müssen. Had to. This is the, this is the fate. It's in the nature of the boy and the nature of the rose that this has to happen. But there's even more, perhaps. What, what if the boy and the rose are actually two aspects of the same person? 
Now, what am I saying? I'm not saying that you have to be thinking all of this. But I'm, uh, I'm pointing out dimensions that I feel are somehow there and, and resonant, if, you, if your ears hear them. Especially when you consider how important suicide was as a topic for Goethe. Beata kills himself. It's a, it's a novel about suicide, and it, it um, moved a whole generation of, of young people throughout Europe, not just in Germany, to to examine the meaning and value of their lives in uh, in society. The, the the suicide was in part uh, a dramatic rejection of uh, of an unsatisfactory life of conformity and it was a romantic yearning for union with nature as love and as passion it was it was the desire not to compromise or be compromised in any way Dean, thank you so very much for sharing this wealth of information with us it's a revelation to see the layers to see the depth of your perception of poetry and how much we can bring the songs that we adore. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So that was just a portion of our wonderful chat with Dean Larson. Let's have a final listen to Heidenreuth's line as you've never heard it before, a story of kinship, of necessary evil, art as a celebration of being alive, and of living life in an uncompromising way. Thanks, as always, to our uncompromisingly wonderful producer, Matthew Principe. Thank you, of course, to Dean Larson. If you'd like to know more about the Schubert Institute, go to our website, sparksandwirycries.com, and follow the links there. You've been listening to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Who's like?